This is everything you want to know about non-clinical careers for physicians. For Third Evolution, I'm your host, Robert Pretty. So what's the credential package you need to be able to transition to a non-clinical career? I'm asked this question almost every day, and most often specifically in the context of, hey, do I need an MBA? So let me answer this both broadly and specifically. In other words, what credentials will a potential non-clinical employer most likely look at or assume necessary? And what credentials do you need to secure an upper-middle executive role? Speaking very broadly, you have all the education you need. And to cut to the chase, experience is the most valuable credential you can have. Experience and experiences that you can use to convince potential employers you can solve their problems. So let me explain. Unlike medical practice requirements of having the appropriate residency, board certification, and the like, which all go to making credentialing quite standardized, in the non-clinical world, credentials, whether formal degrees, training, certifications, and the like, well, any non-clinical employer, they can ask for anything they wish. Your experience in medicine is different. In medicine, you'd never encounter an employer looking for a combined general practice pediatrician who also has a second residency in OB-GYN. That's because in medicine, most training is linear. Any subsequent training is consistent with and supports all the education and training that preceded it. So, may an employer expecting to hire a physician for a non-clinical role also set an additional requirement of an MBA? Of course. But why? Why would they do that? Why would an organization want a physician to have both a medical and an MBA degree? Well, they want the MBA not because of any special skill or knowledge necessarily conveyed upon the recipient, but rather because it shows some level of interest and aptitude for business. Moreover, it's actually a substitute for what they really want, what they would really prefer, and that's experience. Again, medicine provides an interesting paradigm, and one that can be completely at odds with the business world. In business, the greatest premium is placed on experience. In medicine, often it's placed on education. Certainly, there are exceptions, but often the recency of education can outweigh extensive experience. That is because, in part, much of medicine is perceived as very task-based. In that environment, the value of an intense residency versus the value of 10 or more years of practice are often evened out. In my own experience in hospital administration, hiring physicians straight from residency was often preferred simply because they were more malleable and fit easier in a group environment. Plus, they were expected to have the latest experience and knowledge base. I can hear some of you with 10 or 15 or 30 years of experience groaning or perhaps cursing right now, but right or wrong, I'm sharing what are both general and widely held views. I'm now just the messenger, so don't shoot. In business, people right from training or right from college are also recognized as being highly task-skilled. However, few businesses succeed or fail because they're unable to perform a task. They succeed or fail because they make bad decisions. And an MBA won't teach you, teach you to make good decisions, period. So therein lies the conflict. Further, let me differentiate between wrong decisions and bad decisions and right decisions and good decisions. I define wrong and right decisions as technically correct, fact, and data-based decisions. I define good and bad decisions as, combina as a combination of data, the facts, the environment, 
the political issues and the context of decision making. In other words, making a good decision more often than not involves a range of data inputs, both subjective and objective, with both requiring a level of experience to provide proper weight to each. The good decision may or not be technically correct. As an old physician friend commented to me one day, he said this, there is both the art and the science of medicine, and when I find the two in conflict, I will always follow the art. Any bright, smart person can discern data and facts to tease out a very logical and technically correct decision. It does not make it a good decision, however. I recall many years ago, my hospital was building a freestanding outpatient surgery center. It was going to be abutted to our main hospital structure. After many weeks of hassle and haranguing, the architects concluded the extension on the hospital could not be built on the footprint we had provided. It was just too small. We were at a stalemate. The project, however, had already been announced. A groundbreaking had occurred, but the plans were incomplete. And at that point in time, the plans had failed. The only option presented by the architects was to encroach on, into a significant portion of the doctor's parking lot, and that wasn't anything any of us wanted to do. Weeks into this fiasco, I was having coffee one morning with the director of surgery and the newly appointed director of that ambulatory unit, the nurse who would be the head of the new unit. I was explaining to them a roadblock we had hit and lamented that I really didn't know how this could be resolved. All of our experts could not find a good resolution. The technically right answer was to take the parking lot, but that simply was not a good answer. As the three of us sat there, the two nurses started whispering to each other, ignoring me completely in the process. Then one asked, have you thought of this? The new addition sat in part above the existing surgery department. And the new addition was designed to have two elevators moving between a first and second floor. What if that new addition was reimagined to only accommodate patient intake and reception, waiting area, pre-op and post-op? In other words, with no operating rooms at all. What if those two elevators dropped one more floor into the existing surgery suite? They then developed a near instant value proposition for using existing ORs in terms of staffing and also in terms of physician convenience and case management. Their answer was based first on operational flow, second on staffing, third on patient management, and last on architecture and construction. They had arrived at a very good answer not to mention enormous cost savings, both direct and indirect. Well, after that, our executive team huddled. They presented it to the architects, and their response was, no, that can't happen. Well, we kept asking, and we demanded their engineers study the plan and its structural feasibility. The project was green-lighted, and I think that surgery center is still in use today. The experience, the functional and physical knowledge of those two nurses won the day and saved an important project. Our nurses provided a good answer. Our architects could only provide a correct or right answer based on the data. So if you're transitioning from practicing medicine, i.e. performing tasks, to making business decisions, that is, thinking for a living, what do you want to say to a prospective employer? Do you want to say, look at my new degree, look at the tasks I've learned to do, or do you believe you'd be more successful displaying all the good decisions you've made, and do you want to be compensated for your decision-making or for your tasks, that is, your production? Think about it. But there is more to credentialing other than degrees, an MBA, an MPH, or something else. Also, consider your licensure, your board certification, and in today's environment, holding some certificate in a non-clinical area. 
Starting with your license, my advice to every physician is to maintain your licensure, at least one. I know many of you have licenses in several states, so you might look at which one is most difficult to obtain and keep that one. However, depending on your age, you may not want to keep up with the CMEs in order to keep an active license. So check with your state or states to learn if they offer physicians different licensure status. And if they do, does something other than an active, unrestricted license better fit your objectives? I know some states offer what they term an administrative license. This status has both different restrictions and requirements, each determined at the state level. Regardless, the point is you may have some options relative to licensure that you find more suitable to your situation and your objectives. One final point I'll make about this, do investigate and be very clear regarding any future changes you might wish to make. For example, once you've changed your licensure status, can you reinstate it to a full and unrestricted license? And what would it require? My opinion is that within reason, I never want to fully or completely close any doors. So know before you make any changes. Know what they mean and know what is required to reverse any change you make and then make the best decision for you. Concerning board certification status, my simple comment is that maintaining your license without your boards may be a glass half full. Keep your status as long as you can. Next, look at your malpractice insurance. Generally, there's a link between MedMal and licensure. Learn what happens if you change your licensure status and learn what coverage options may exist if you're no longer seeing patients. And again, know your options. Know what options exist if you terminate or change your licensure status and what would be required if you wish to reverse all those actions sometime in the future. The same goes for any privileges you may have, that is, hospital privileges, surgery centers, or other inpatient or outpatient venues. If you relinquish privileges, again, know what that means and know what reinstatement, should you wish it, would require. Some organizations will allow an, an inactive status that may serve to keep you viable, but eliminate the typical admission or coverage requirements associated with active privileges. Next, consider other entities that offer what they call board certifications. These are not American Board of Medical Specialties, that's ABMS, regulated organizations. Simply put, numerous organizations that provide educational material, training, or seminars, they use the term board certification as a marketing gimmick to attract physicians. They construct some test or exam process, and it's often coupled with participation in a series of required educational programs. Again, let's go back to my overview regarding other postgraduate degrees. Attending some programs and passing a test does not equate with nor supplant experience. Lastly, how many online and summer certificate programs have you seen? Some of the Ivy League schools seem to promote these, and I will admit a decade or two ago, they seem to carry some weight. Today, well, not so much. But I value them based on two standards. Standard one, do they provide information that cannot be gained from any other source? And standard two, will they provide an excellent networking platform? To evaluate standard one, look at the faculty. Some certificate programs step away from existing fa faculty members and bring in current industry leaders. For example, are you going to get a taste of international business from a junior faculty member in the university's MBA program? Or will you get six hours of insights from an ex-U.S. Undersecretary of Commerce for European Affairs? There's a big difference. On measuring the second standard, does it represent an excellent networking opportunity? Again, begin with the faculty. That junior instructor may have some contacts, 
but she's more interested in getting through the class than in schmoozing with you. That ex-undersecretary is likely to have a better sense of the value of meeting people and making introductions. Next, who else is in the class? Bluntly, and the first question is this, are these people you actually want to meet? Do any of them represent someone you would consider a high-level networking contact? And then the next step beyond that is a bit more subjective. Do you believe they represent someone who could have good contacts that they would be willing to introduce you to? Oh, and technically there is a third standard. Will you learn something of value from the program? But perhaps that's a given. Again, so much of the old Harvard Executive MBA mystique has been diluted by a gazillion articles and books that are so easily acquired that these actual certificate programs don't carry the cachet they once did. But if you look beyond our branding and more at my two standards, you're unlikely to be disappointed. As I said in the beginning, and a couple of times now, nothing is valued more than experience. One of my favorite stories involves Thomas Edison. I say story because I doubt its veracity can be verified, but it does make for a great story and a good example here. So here goes. A New England factory owner found himself virtually out of business when the main manufacturing machine in his factory ceased to function. He had contacted numerous people and companies to try to repair it, but they had all failed. As a last chance, it had been suggested that he contact Thomas Edison, known for his mechanical genius. Edison visited the factory, was shown the machine, and had explained to him both what it was supposed to do and its current state. Supposedly, Edison tinkered with it a bit, surveying its size and complexity, and then turned to the owner, stating, I, I believe I can fix this. He then asked the owner and all those accompanying him and the employees to leave the vicinity and let them know that he would contact them when it was time to return. They departed, and yet little more than 30 minutes later, Edison called them back to the factory floor. He then instructed the owner to push the start button on the machine, and it instantly began running as normal. The owner, it said, was aghast and couldn't thank Edison enough for literally saving his factory, saving his business. He then asked what compensation Edison required. Reportedly, Edison, without hesitation, stated the sum $500. Well, this is the late 19th century. $500 in 1895 is the equivalent of more than $15,000 today. So $15,000 for 30 minutes work. And that's what the factory owner exclaimed. Edison's reportedly calm reply was simply, No, sir, that's $500 for the more than 30 years of experience that allowed me to fix your machine in only 30 minutes. Your task, then, is to enumerate your 10 or 20 or 30 years of experience in such a manner as to define those problems you're uniquely able to solve. I say uniquely because physicians solve problems differently than the rest of us. First, physicians solve more important and significant problems daily than probably any other profession. Second, through your training and education, you learn to solve those problems in a very cogent and straightforward process. That's a great asset. Use it. But again, begin by defining the problems you can and you want to solve. They may be organizational in medicine. They may be social, political. I'm sure you have many interests or perhaps many frustrations. That is those things you'd really like to change. So be begin by listing those things you want to change and then shorten your list based on the things you believe you can change. My constant admonition to every client is this. Your career should be something you actually want to do. The next obvious question is this. 
If every job requires experience, how do I get experience if I can't get a job? Well, that's easy. In the non-clinical world, every out-of-work executive is a consultant. Now, I don't mean they're working for one of the big eight or big four or what the number is today for top-tier consulting groups, but rather they offer a little advice here, write some blog articles there, perhaps attend a conference, and even create a consulting website. Voila, they're consultants. You can do the same. What problem do you want to solve? Who has it? Go talk to them. Offer to put some of your ideas on paper. Offer to help. Help may mean implementation. It might mean meetings. It might be some presentations. But offer to help. Now you have experience. Also, consider volunteering. As a volunteer, you're a sought-after person in the nonprofit world or the political world. Offer some time. Then begin elevating yourself based on this simple phrase. I have some thoughts about that. If I were to treat this problem as a patient, this is what I'd probably do. Again, you're gaining experience. On your resume, you don't have to say you were a volunteer. You need only say, I recognize this problem, worked with staff to develop and implement this solution, and achieved this result. Oh, and note, I said resume, not CV. The reality is this, the more you believe in yourself, the more others will believe in you. But beliefs are not developed with broad, expansive declarations. Beliefs are built on granular, down-in-the-weeds, nuts-and-bolts activities. As a volunteer, you can begin with nuts and bolts and then grow to see the entire machine, the entire operation. So what credentials do you need to transition from clinical to non-clinical careers? Your medical degree paints you as a pretty smart person, a good learner, and generally a very hard worker. That's a good place to start. As far as some further string of acronyms to a company MD or DO, I would not recommend making that a priority before stepping into the non-clinical market. After you're there, if you find the only thing standing between you and a specific job, note, I'm saying a specific job you want. In other words, someone says to you, you have all the qualifications, experience, and background we want, but gee, I'm sorry, you don't seem to have an XYZ degree, so we can't hire you for this. If you encounter that, then you have reasons to seek further credentials. I'm betting that won't happen. Lastly, it's a very legitimate question to ask yourself about certain elements of knowledge you may believe you're lacking or some area you need some brushing up on. If that's the case, then consider this. Information is available from many different sources. Whenever I want to learn about something, my first point of contact is Google. I'm surprised how many people I say this to seem surprised. From opinion writing to peer-reviewed research and articles, Google is a tremendous resource for data, information, how-to videos. You name it. Need to know the meaning of the calculation for IRR? Google. Need to know the incidence of infectious disease in North Dakota over the last 10 years? Google. By the way, the answer to that last question is the top of the page, and it's the official North Dakota epidemiology report. But should you need some interaction with your acquisition of knowledge, look at community colleges in your area. Most community college courses can be audited. Again, you don't need a community college course credit to enliven your credentials. And most community college courses are taught by what I call practitioner faculty. They are taught by people actually doing daily the work about which they're teaching. So their basis for knowledge transfer is practical. It's operational. You can pose real-world questions to them and get real-world answers. And as I always say, once you have the answers you want, stop attending and go after your new job. 
So look at other forms of ed education first, purely as education. That is, look for sources of information and knowledge that are not predicated on obtaining a degree, a certificate, or some other credential. And my final point, knowledge obtained in this way is simply considered experience. And as I said in the beginning and throughout this podcast, experience is the most valuable credential you can have. If you have questions or comments about this podcast or any other podcast, please don't hesitate to contact me directly at 720-339-3585. That's for voice, message, or text. For Third Evolution, this is Robert Pretty. Thank you for listening.